Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings here, listeners, and welcome to the January 2024 edition of State of Distressed Debt. We're part of the Fick Focus podcast series where we focus on the U.S. stressed, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me to explore the state of play are litigation analyst Nagisa Baluku and senior distressed analyst Phil Brindell of Bloomberg Intelligence. In addition, Phil and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Cheney Sheffield, partner at and co-portfolio manager for Kenyan Partners and the Kenyan Distressed Opportunity Fund Number 4. Before we dive in, a request from us, a, resol- a resolution for us here in the new year at Fig Focus is to continue building on the quality of content with the exceptional guests that have anchored us over the last two and a half years and nearly 230 episodes. Of course, we can't do that without you. So if you haven't done so already, please do follow, rate, comment, and share. It is greatly appreciated. So thank you. And on to the podcast, Phil. Before we start turning to our conversation with Cheney, let's, as we like to do, start with you. Distressed, that share of the high yield market that trades 1,000 basis points or 10, 10% above treasuries, that never really materialized as much of a theme throughout 2023. So what went awry? Well, you know, it's uh, the distressed market has been um, following the seasonals the last two months, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's come down significantly. Distress supply has come down. Uh, it's rallied. It's now at its lowest level. The distress ratio is at 6.4%. Um, that's its lowest level in 19 months. Uh, it's really, it's, it's just been, um, following seasonals because December through May tends to be its strongest part of the year, strongest half of the year. Um, so, you know, high rates, we, we know that that's hurting a lot of corporates balance sheets, but the, the companies are not filing. Um, and, uh, the investors are just scooping up, uh, the yields of even these troubled companies. So the demand seems to be there. Uh, January is certainly seasonally strong for credit, so I don't expect to see anything there. Uh, it's it's uh, it's been mystifying, but um, you know I I, I do continue to uh, think the seasonals will play itself out. March is tends to be the worst month of the first quarter, so if there's a a chance that distress supply will rise, that might be when it goes, um, but. Generally speaking, uh, the the market seemed buoyant, and it's not clear to me that we'll be seeing, um, you know, the, the wipeout that uh, I think we'll eventually get. But you know, th- this has been playing out. We 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 thought it was going to be a slow climb higher in distress supply. That it wasn't going. We weren't going to get this massive panic off move. Uh, that this time is a little bit different. It's going to be more incremental um, and. I guess we're seeing that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the themes from our conversation with Cheney was sort of that bifurcation in the marketplace, right? Where you've got sort of like this subsegment that's distressed and just can't get out of distress, but then everybody else has sort of rallied to the tights. And, and to your point, whether they were able to tap capital or, or frankly, you know, somewhat auspiciously, everybody uh, took advantage of the hyper low rates of 2020, 2021, excuse me. 
uh, you know, refinanced, extended maturity. So you really didn't have much that way to speak of. That said, you know, bankruptcy or, or deep distress historically hasn't been necessarily a maturity driven thing. Uh, do you sort of see any themes in terms of the year ahead? You mentioned seasonals in terms of what you're looking for, certainly in the early stages of 2024. But are there any other themes that you're sort of mindful of? I think it's going to play out uh, interesting. I, I'm really interested in seeing if we're going to get uh, uh, the economic uh, slowdown that many are expecting. Um, and, you know, I know it seems like the bears, are, you know, the, the best that's the the best the bears are hoping for is like uh, it seems almost a soft landing at this point. It seems like everyone's pretty convinced. And yet we, you know, all these price cuts are being priced in. So I think you have to be nimble and flexible and, and, and sort of keep your eye on, you know, which, where the, where it's going. Um, it's, you know, the reason why, you know, I stick with seasonals is because they have uh, played out historically very well. Um, you know, it, it's a very seasonal market. And so if I was thinking that this rally might run out of steam, it would be maybe first shot would be March. And, and then certainly after May, uh, that's the traditional time when the bids fall away and uh, it, it, the market gets soft. So uh, I, I, I think for at least for the next two months, I don't anticipate much of a rise in distress supply. Yeah, it'll be interesting to sort of keep an eye on. And certainly we have a lot of sort of exogenous events this year with the elections and whatnot. So, uh, you know, a lot of sort of things to stay in touch with. So thank you for your thoughts there. So maybe let's now turn to that conversation with Canyon Partners, Cheney Sheffield. So we're very pleased to be joined today by Cheney Sheffield. Cheney is partner at Canyon Partners and co-PM for the Canyon Distressed Opportunity Fund number four. Canyon has about $24 billion in assets under management and a focus on deep value within the credit landscape, including distressed. Cheney, welcome to State of Distressed Debt. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be here. So let's maybe start a little bit with your background. Uh, you know, you joined Canyon in 2008, if I recall, after wearing a couple of different hats over at Morgan Stanley. So maybe you can walk us through first your time at Morgan Stanley and, and then sort of what you made you sort of make that jump 15 years ago and what the evolution has been uh, during your time at Canyon. Uh, sure. Happy to. Um, I can't believe it's uh, my 20th year starting in the uh, distressed uh, universe. I, I started in the distressed desk at Morgan Stanley in 2004. Um, I was part of the investment banking group and our distressed guys had uh, purchased a position in Trump's Atlantic City casinos, and they were looking to restructure that, and they brought the banking team involved to see if they can make some M&A happen. Um, it didn't happen, but that w I got to work with them for six weeks, and at the end of that project, they said, why don't you stay down here on the trading floor, and um, I happily accepted, and did distressed from 2004 to 2008, you know, similar fed hiking regime there was a, a commodity super cycle got to see a lot of uh, private equity sponsored companies face distress when input costs were going through the roof um, int interest costs were rising as well so that's actually the the time that 
seems most similar to the last 18 months we've seen here, uh, almost 20 years later. Um, in 2008, uh, with the great financial crisis looming, I was pretty lucky. Uh, I got a call from Canyon looking for a VP level guy. Um, there was a lot of turmoil in the market and the way things shook out, I actually joined the day IndyMac filed for bankruptcy in 2008. So when, <laughs> Pretty auspicious. You know, I remember Morgan Stanley was having, all the banks were having some major issues. So um, it was quite an exciting time. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I jumped into Canyon. I, was, I think it was the last hire. I was, was worried I, I might be the first out the door, but uh, a lot of opportunity came in the ensuing 18 months and I took over covering a lot of the gaming positions and packaging positions for Canyon. And so for the last 15 and I guess 16th year, been covering gaming, lodging, leisure, paper packaging, more recently healthcare. And then, um, as you mentioned, most, most recently co-heading the distressed opportunities for fund with my partner, Jonathan Barzade. Yeah, so a lot to dig into there, certainly, and certainly within those sectors, they've all gone through sort of super cycles of their own in terms of the distress space, and, and we'll definitely touch on that. I guess before getting there, maybe just a quick overview uh, of the firm. Uh, you know, the company does manage about $24 billion. How does that split out in terms of strategies specifically? How much of that uh, are you sort of managing through the distress side? Yeah, I think in aggregate, we, we have about $6 billion of specifically uh, dedicated to stressed in, uh, strategies. Uh, Canyon was founded, you know, in 1990 by Mitch and Josh. You know, we, we at the core, are distressed guys. I mean, they came out of Drexel. Um, it really is, you know, stressed and distressed credit up and down the capital structure is our sweet spot. And... Um, you know, it's 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 nice to have uh, a, a quite robust opportunity set to look into nowadays. Yeah, and that's another thing I definitely want to dig into because the distress cycle has been sort of a, a tricky thing uh, this time around. But before we get there, maybe just in terms of overarching management style, uh, do you guys have sort of a position or concentration, minimum investment sizes? How do you guys run the book or I guess maybe specifically – uh, where your co-PM is there? Are there any sort of guardrails in terms of how you allocate? Yeah, I mean, generally uh, we're looking to build a pretty diversified book of uh, credit-specific opportunities. Um, I'd say we've always been very downside protected. You know, first thing we look at is you know what is the downside in the situation and looking for uh, situations with asymmetric upside opportunities. Um, I would say generally, you know, we're looking at 2% physicians. Sometimes when we really like it and really feel comfortable about the situations, they can go up to 4 or 5%. In some, in some cases, even higher. For, you know, for example, when you know in bankruptcy, the recoveries are going to result in a large cash distribution or, or first lien debt that you feel very good and is well-structured, it can be higher than that. But, you know, we are at core just credit geeks we like to we pride ourselves in knowing our industries knowing our companies so it's a very bottoms up approach but then we layer on a, a top down to make sure we're not getting too exposed to any one um, sector or theme um, to give us a good risk adjusted return so let's maybe 
talk to that top down a little bit. And you had mentioned earlier in terms of the current environment kind of reminds you a little bit of when you got going in this space in terms of the rate regime, et cetera. Uh, and we talked a little bit or you alluded to sort of the cycle and, and you know, it's been interesting to me because, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a waiting for Godot in terms of at least for the, the liquid part of the high yield market in terms of really getting that distressed in, in, in bankruptcy up cycle. Uh, we haven't seen it. Maybe we're seeing it a little bit more in loans. Where do you think we are today in the, the in this cycle? And, and I guess sort of whatever your expectations for the next year or two, do you think this is sort of one of these elongated cycles like the early 2000s where it just rotates through sectors and maybe there's never a big super headline number, but everybody feels it? Or, or you think we're still just waiting for sort of that big uptick? Well, you know, I, I think it all comes down to the $64,000 question is what where are rates going to shake out? Uh, I was looking at a high-yield strategy report uh, the other day that points out that even if the Fed cuts to 3%, that 20% of the high-yield index would still be cash flow negative. So, you know, the longer rates stay elevated, the, lo the larger the distressed opportunity becomes. We have maturities, maturity walls approaching and you know, while high yield spreads are pretty tight and we've come off this massive Santa rally, they're still significant. I think Bloomberg quoted $650 billion worth of securities trading at distressed prices. So if you have a near-term maturity or a liquidity issue, uh, you're trading extremely wide. And, you know, I think that's hidden beneath the, the tight spreads on the, not tight, but not overly exciting spreads on the high yield index. Well, you could say tight. I think they're tight, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, the market is pretty bifurcated, right? It's it's definitely sort of a haves and haves, not sort of. Is there something that sort of jumps out to you then in terms of uh, you know typically through you know a lot of the bankruptcy cycles, you end up with sort of sector concentrations. Uh, certainly, as you mentioned, sort of your, a lot of your coverage areas, right? Whether it was gaming or packaging, right? We've all gone through those cycles. Are there areas, it seems like maybe communications right now, are there areas where you say, well, you know, the opportunity looks potentially outsized in any given space? Yeah, well, first I'd say is interest rates don't really care what, what, what sector you're in. Um, so if you are levered, um, you are facing issues. Because so far at 5%, you know, n none of these capital structures work in levered land. And, you know, from 2018 to 2021, I think 50% of all LVOs were well over five times levered. And kind of definitionally, uh, you're cash flow negative because of the jump in SOFR. So um, I think what's different this time than certainly the last 15 years is you, each of our team leaders, our, our portfolio managers come to our investment committees every Wednesday. And each of them, we all, we're all divided by sector have something to talk about and whereas before it was what shipping or oil and gas or you know amazon destroying retail here it's much more of a story of was a capital structure built in the low for longer environment um and if it was it's likely <laughs> under some <laughs> level of, of duress <laughs> right yeah and that is so, something I mean, but I, I will say in my spaces yeah i like if I, I've been joking for the last 18 months, I've been schizophrenic because gaming, lodging, and leisure, you know, people are still spending. 
like crazy. And there is not a lot of distress in that, those spaces. And you look at those numbers and you think, geez, the Fed has got to keep rates high because we are too hot. And you look over on, you know, packaging or chemicals or, or industrials, and you're like, whoa, like some of these volume numbers are worse than 2009. Like, you know, these, the Fed is way behind. They should have cut already. So you know, I think that's <laughs> what the market's struggling with is, you know, what, what the market's pricing in six cuts. The Fed's kind of hitting at three. You know, that six cuts certainly must embed some bears out there that think that things are absolutely broken and that they should be cutting all the way back down to two. Um, you know, when you look at capital structures as we do, it, it is, it is a, it, it's a complicated thing because the cap structures do not work with SOFR at five. And I would argue they probably don't work with them at four and maybe they start to be okay at sub three. Um, that's pretty bearish, but it's so bearish and there's so much capital and so much floating rate debt that everybody sees how bad it is and makes you think, well, they're going to have to cut. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely end up on, a, on the carousel. We actually saw that in markets last year, right? I mean, we went through these cycles of playing the pivot and then no wait, you know, rates are going to stay higher for longer and a strong dollar and then no wait, they're going to cut. And so... You know, whether, you know, we sort of kind of continue on that ride or not, I guess, remains to be seen. I, I think talking to the floating rate space is really interesting, right? Because we get a little bit on the corporate side. Uh, obviously, the leverage loan space is predominantly there. And then we've got sort of this, I don't want to call it a new market entry because it's been around for a little while, but it certainly has gotten a lot of media attention over the last, call it, 12 months or so. And that being private private credit. I, I guess maybe a little bit there in terms of how do you think about that universe? How does that impact your space? Space. Do you think that's sort of a breeding ground for opportunity in the future, given that it is so floating rate oriented? Well, I, there's no doubt, given um, the floating rate nature of private credit, that deals underwritten prior to SOFR being a five have to be cash flow negative <laughs> you know, and, and needing some credit support or picking. Um, you know, that, that, that's no different than the, the public markets, um, even though you're not seeing the marks necessarily. Um, you know, private credit definitely is crowding out some of the opportunity set that would be historically in the syndicated loan market. So uh, there are a lot of LBOs out there that nobody's heard of or, or seen in the public markets. Um, I think there's an element of there's a new party to think about. You know, it used to be, oh, you're in this troubled credit and you're going to work work it out with the company. And now the company's advisors are going and reaching out to every private credit fund and seeing if they will come in and do a, a rescue loan so that and they generally have a lower cost of capital than distressed players would, would have. Um, for example, I mean, we, we were involved in a credit that had been struggling for quite some time and through covenant negotiations, I think the pricing had gotten up to S plus 1100 and they're about to trip another covenant. And we found out that we got paid off in full by a private credit fund who did the loan at S 600. So <laughs> very good for the company. Good for us to get our money back. And what was looking like a problematic uh, situation. Um, but you know, now we have to find uh, place to reinvest that capital. 
Yeah, and that's the interesting things, right? Because the the incentive structure is maybe not the same, right? It's not a pure ROI. It's sort of a sustainability of the 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 lending or the loan that's outstanding or something like that. But that's a really interesting <laughs> anecdote, I guess. But, yeah, yeah. But I I would say it, it's it's what I said earlier. If rates, if it turns out, you know, CPI for whatever reason comes in hot and rates stay elevated for quite some time, you would think that's going to be a breeding ground for more distressed opportunity because some of those funds will want liquidity. We've already heard of some of the trading desks setting up to trade private credit, even though that should be an oxymoron. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, you know, the markets are converging. You know, seeing banks are reacting to the competition you know, by forming their own private credit teams. And in, in many ways, it feels like the markets will converge again. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess maybe before going into maybe some sector specifics, uh, any thoughts here in terms of maybe super macro, you know, deficits, the cost of deficits, the expected, you know, particularly at the current rates, even if we're rolling it over in bills and sort of where monetary policy goes, you'd mentioned the $64,000 question being, you know, where do rates end up? Uh, is there, do you guys have a leaning or, or do you try to be relatively agnostic in terms of where policy goes? Well, we're, we're definitely not a, a, a macro focused shop. Um, we try to make our investments, you know, planning for the variety of different scenarios and entering the cap structure at a, at a point where, you know, if the treasuries go back up above five, that there's still, still value there. And, Obviously, if if there's massive cutting, that's generally positive for all the fixed income positions. Um, but yeah, it is it is concerning. I mean, I, I will tell you, I remember going from investment banking to being a you know junior distressed guy on the desk and listening to some of the guys talk about how unsustainable our fiscal situation was. I mean, that that's a common theme of of cranky cranky credit distressed guys like ourselves. <laughs> it certainly feels like, you know, well, if, if QE and all the deficits we've run heretofore weren't a problem, it seems like it's getting pretty egregious nowadays. Um, uh, it's not lost on people that uh, the treasuries began to rally when Yellen went to the front end of the curve instead of hitting the belly and longer end. So, I, you know, that's a that's a risk out there that, we think about, but it's it's hard to really invade the credit-specific work we're doing. Yeah, fair. Uh, and now, Phil, I know you wanted to come in here and you had some views and some thoughts and questions in terms of what maybe is going on in terms of sectors or names. Yeah, no, th thanks, uh, Cheney. It's great to get this opportunity to talk to you. Um, you know, we, we touched a little bit on sectors uh, and that the interest rate is, and I agree with you, the interest rate is basically uh, going across all sectors and causing distress just from basically if, if you're leveraged, you're targeted. Um, but are there particular sectors that you're really focused on that you see as like some secular trend just really kind of uh, taking any of the sectors down? Well, I'm, I'm definitely very focused on my historic packaging space. I mean, you know, that's supposed to be a very stable, stable industry. And it's been anything but. And you had this huge pull forward of demand during COVID when everybody was just staying home and stocking their cupboards. 
that's gone the other way. Plus, you know, packaging will hit the whole socioeconomic spectrum. And it is quite clear that the bottom two thirds is tightening their belts and, and ordering or buying less or shifting down to private label. Um, so like I said, I, I think in 2009, glass bottle manufacturers probably saw volumes down in the high single digits. And that was, you know, that was when the, the whole economy froze and people stopped going to bars. They're not doing their glass, you know, drinking the glass bottles. And, you know, you saw quarters last year where the volumes were down 19%. Um, so that, that is very unusual. Um, and generally I would say packaging does not like inflation. <laughs> so they're selling to customers that they don't have a lot of pricing power over. And, um, when the costs go up, they try and pass them through, but your, your margins get squeezed. So it, it has, you, you, you're seeing a space that I would say for the bulk of the last 15 years was at the tight end of the high yield index is now at the wide end of high yield index and one that has a decent amount of leverage. So yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting space and um, tied to that kind of industrial space. I mean, the, 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 a lot of um, industrials and chemicals are flashing major recessionary signs. <laughs> for, 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 for the packaging space in particular, um, I remember when I was, you know, in, investing in the space, the leverage levels have were always historically high. Have they, are they, you know, that was back in the 2000s. I mean, are they still extremely high? Because I, I know, you know, it's, it's the curse of high yield. It's, it, you know, it's those industries that generate uh, consistent high cash flow that get levered up the most so that if that ever changes, it's, you know, qu quickly you can fall into distress. And packaging always struck me as one of those that, you know, companies were very comfortable operating at pretty high leverage levels. Um, going into... Uh, okay. That's absolutely still true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> high, high, high cash flowers. When I was covering them probably along when you were in, um, in 04 to 08, you know, the issue there was they had annual contracts on their price throughs. And that was never really a problem, but um, you know, from 04 to 08, resin prices just went up month after month after month, and they all got killed. And out of 09, um, they restructured all their contracts to be much shorter pass-throughs, um, and uh, th that basically created even more confidence that they can operate at high leverage. And so private equity has been very active in the space for a long time. It's still super fragmented. Many of the, many of the different sub-industries sub are, are super fragmented and there's just a tremendous ability to do roll-ups and buy things for six or seven times, mom and pops and you know, take out synergies and you're creating it for three and a half or four times and therefore deleveraging your structure. So I, I think that thesis remains. They've definitely hit a huge speed bump in the last 18 months. Um, some of the cap structures look pretty unsustainable, um, but um, I do think that there's uh, there's a couple different ways you can win in those situations. And certainly, what I like about packaging is 
um, if you do get this broader recession that people have feared at various levels over the last eighteen months, um, that keeps inflation that that keeps their input costs low, and they tend to actually generate more cash flow in softer economies. Uh, like '09, ironically bailed out the the packagers because then oil and resin collapsed, and you had this huge working capital inflow and generally higher margins. Um, so it's a, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting space that hasn't been this interesting in over a decade. And I would I would apply packaging to the broader private equity market, right? I mean, those are the those are most of the levered names that are five plus times levered, and um, you know, so what we've been trying to do across industries is find sponsor-backed companies that look like their balance sheets somewhat upside down and pick the ones where you think that there's a good path out and there should be a path for the equity. Because, you know, with the state of docs now, um, you can't, I think you have to take a little bit more of a partnership approach <laughs> than the historic buy the first lien fold your arms and pay me off right so um you definitely want to pick ones where you could you can bridge to that better day two years from now when sofers come back down or or margins have have rebounded so it's interesting you have an investment banking background um and to an extent uh when you're talking about partnering with the company and potentially the equity sponsor and this leads us nicely into the next topic credit on credit or violence and you know i think it's interesting because um what we've seen is the debtors almost turn this on its head and when they enter into one of these crises where they're short on cash they start having lenders compete against under other lenders for the rescue financing, for the treatment of their old claims, for depending on how much new money they can put in, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting. You're with a banking background, it probably gives you an edge in some respects that you're comfortable dealing with, uh, you know, companies management teams and that sort of thing, as opposed to maybe a an Excel jockey, uh, you know, at a distress desk. So. How do you think about these uh, situations when um, you're taking a look at them? You know, is potential, you know, if you have old money in uh, and looking to rescue or maybe like put a new investment in, uh, are you talking with the company or you're looking at the docs and maybe just your initial thoughts on how to how you think about these rescue financings and such? Yeah, well, you know. Even doing it for twenty years, it just get, keeps keeps getting more and more complicated, and keep it keeps evolving and keeps you on your toes. That's why uh, you know you love doing this, <laughs> which I do. Yeah. It's it's a new it's a new opportunity every day. Um, but I think one of the first lessons um, you know I was taught entering distressed, um, and I've kind of folded in with investment banking, but. You're trying to reach a deal, and you have to be able to put yourself in each of the stakeholders' shoes. And you know, I think it's easier when you're not in in a stressed situation to to be looking from the outside and just say what what makes the most sense here. It, does it make the most sense to just be the new money opportunity that's taking advantage of the weak docs and going to the sponsor saying like, 
here, you need liquidity. You can take these assets out of this box and we, we can structure a, a document that feels good for our investors. Good. You know, it will be written in a way that won't allow the looseness in the, that the existing doc has. It'll give you a lifeline and, and you can do liability management with the remainder. Um, it might be better to, you know, we were, we've, we've, we've done a few of these this, this year. It, it might be better to own the existing, buy into the existing at a, at a discounted price and go lead the group and say, guys, the company is being told by these advisors and lawyers the truth that the looseness in this stock that we have is an asset of the company and they're going to look to monetize that asset through discount. That's just fact. That's why we're trading at 60 cents on the dollar. <laughs> so I think the best outcome here is we're going to give them some discount in exchange for a new document that we feel is investable and that hopefully these series of actions through discount and new money will bridge to the business plan that you can underwrite that gets you back to free cash flow positive. I mean, that's what we're trying to do most of the time. Um, and I think there's so many scary actions and I don't want to say devious because the documents allow it. So many things that people who are used to a tight document think are incredible, incredible um, that you're getting first liens in packaging at 60 cents on the dollar. That never, that should never happen. <laughs> right? Like, right. First lien in packaging is supposed to be covered all the time. Um, so there's, there's a lot to calibrate. There's a lot of risk, but with that is a lot of opportunity. And, but it is, a, it is a tricky to navigate. And that's why you need to, you know, this is a repeat business that you need to know the players. You need to know the sponsors. You need to know the other creditors. You need to, um, have a good handle on the situation. You have to know the business and have a lot of confidence in that business plan because a lot of the times you are going to be forced to put your money where your mouth is and, and follow your investment through an evolution. And from a sponsor's perspective, you know, the more I really haven't seen one where they've done these uh, creditor on creditor violence transactions, unsubs, double dips, where it actually ends up working out for the sponsor. Like the, the nastiest situations to me are damage control. Like that's where you already have a big investment in, you know, this cap structure, you know, bad things can happen and you realize the only way I'm going to do right by my investors is to jump the line and go propose this to the sponsor and see if they take it and, try and make, make it so that my recovery is better than it otherwise would be. Is there yeah. any sort of connection there from the standpoint, like you had mentioned, sort of it being sort of a relationship and sort of a repeat business? I mean, it seems like it's, you know, this behavior is sort of accepted now, but is there any sort of ill will that you think that's generated there, you know, six months, 12 months down the road, you cross paths with maybe somebody who jumped the line and it's kind of like, yeah, we don't want to be in a deal with those players. I, I mean, I definitely think that's the risk, but, um, you know, what, when the, to me, the new frontier is, you know, 
getting to 51% and rewriting the doc. You know, to, you know <laughs> that's, that, that seems a little aggressive. Um, but, um, you know, this, these are, everyone's very sophisticated, smart, driven people. Um, I, I think there are some who benefit from having an attitude of, I'm going to fight to the death, and that's my reputation, so steer, steer clear. And then there are people that, you know, you work with on a variety of different deals multiple times and you want to make sure you're not, you know, leaving them behind. You've been doing this for a while and, you know, have you seen it migrate in a, in a certain direction, maybe from the uh, 2000s to the 2010s right, into, into the 20s? Um, you know, has it gotten more aggressive in terms of what creditors will pull off or, or do you well, think it's hundred hundred percent more okay. aggressive, but I think that's definitely also a function of what the docs allow you to do. Okay. Right. And the docs, you know, document degradation has, has been so extreme that it, you know, I remember first reading indentures and credit agreements, you could, it was pretty straightforward. <laughs> now you need, you know, three different attorneys to charge you two thousand dollars an hour. You know, to and they'll give you three different answers. Yeah, which is so. All, it, it's just that much. Top. Yeah, it's just that much more surprising <laughs> given everything that you've now seen can be done to you. That they're still the the documents are still loose because you know we. I, I guess the the bubble the credit bubble that we had heading into the 2007-2008 timeframe with the great financial crisis, um, that, was the, that was another loose time for docs uh, where everyone was just worried about getting as much of put in for $100 million and get a $1 million allocation for their CLO. <laughs> you know, it's a, it was crazy times. Um, but it, it, it's telling that it, things are just as loose, if not looser, right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I obviously think any new deal that's under stress is a much better document right. than than what we had going into COVID. Um, but you know the 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 it's definitely become much more accepted across a variety of different firms to realize that, that this is what people are doing. Um, it's you know I view it as if the doc gives you $2 billion worth of RP capacity and clearly they can r remove the assets It's written in black and white. It's, it's hard to uh, be outraged. There's gambling here. Has, has, has all of that dynamic um, affected the way you think about the investments here? Like, you know, that the, the, all of these different scenarios where like maybe the creditors are doing something to you and, for, and, or is it just kind of, always you got to consider all the scenarios and just put them all in and probability weight them i'm i'm no, it's 100 100% i mean like you have to you know you have to be aware you always have to be aware of the docs there's there's a lot more permutations than there were in the past um, but you know you you could argue something's priced in, but unless you have a real line into what the right outcome is, I try to avoid them, you know? So I, and I think a big difference now versus maybe five, 10 years ago, is there are some just mega funds that it's hard to compete with. If they're willing to write a billion dollar check, like 
you're just along for the ride. I'm not. And, and they're probably going to leave you behind. Right. <laughs> so I do not like those situations. I mean, we, we, we've always been, I would say, a, a little bit more of a boutique credit shop where we, we are often on the steer co. We want to be in control of our destiny and, and heavily involved in the process. And situations where I don't see a clear line of sight to that role, you know, you don't want to be involved because you don't want to wake up and just find out that half your assets are in a new sub. So to the and you know, this is another thing I was wondering about. To the extent that you're joining these groups, I know a lot of times people are locking up to each other now. Those lockup agreements can be pretty uh, restricting, and in terms of both maybe information and your ability to trade and that sort of thing. Um, how do you, when you're considering doing, joining one of those groups, how do you think about that? And, uh, you know, uh, I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, I, I like you're seeing them a lot more. Um, I'd say in the bigger structures, it's obviously harder to pull off to hurt all those cats. That said, there are some, you know, there's one we were looking at where um, the lawyers involved seem to have locked up like 70% of the capital structure, and there's a 2025 maturity. And you, you, yeah, if it's a big structure where either otherwise don't have the requisite influence to make sure we're we're in control of the process, that makes a ton of sense. Um, if it's you know, it, it it all depends on your conviction and on which way it's going. When, when there's a lot, not very much conviction in which way it's going, the lockups make a ton of sense. Um, and let's talk about uh, restructuring technologies because uh, we've seen some new ones. There's the, I, I guess, um, there was a recent deal where there was a double dip. You do intercompany notes and the intercompany note gets a secured guarantees and then also the the collateral in the box you know the the note in the box gets those gets that as well and i'm just kind of curious um and the other aspect is uh, we're seeing a lot of debt now just agree to pick terms and these are companies exiting bankruptcy with pick debt and that's also very interesting at this point because it seems almost like there's a recognition out there that we can't pay this interest ca in cash, uh, and when that's happening right out of bankruptcy, that's that's a little that's a little frightening because theoretically they just did their job in terms of getting uh, to the right debt capacity. And I'm just curious how you think about some of these uh, new structures that are uh, showing up out there. I mean, PIC's not new, but it certainly seems to be being used a lot more. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that seems to be a function of the competing cost of capital. I mean, there's so many people chasing. You're seeing, I, I mean, more recently, I think you've seen more private credit deals where, you know, the pricing's like S525 and PIC for three years. That does not seem that attractive to me. Um, I think that has to be a function of there's a lot of money chasing these deals. <laughs> and right now that, that market's hot. And, you know, we always go through these waves where the market gets hot and that's when the docks get weak and pricing is not great. And that's when we generally wait. <laughs> mm -hmm. And 
and C, uh, wait for a time when there's a little bit more choppiness in the market. Um, yeah, I mean, I think new technologies, it, to me, they're always just kind of building on the last clever deal, whether it's, you know, is C- uh, a new... Is, is CDS still being out, used out there? Because I, I remember all those deals that were CDS-oriented, like getting paid one on one hand. And It's funny you ask that. I actually haven't seen that very much lately. I mean, I would say two things that I have not seen that we used to see a ton of were CDS and then just bridge loans. You know, and like I think private credit basically eliminated bridge loans. So it used to be the bank signed up, but the deal wasn't coming for six months, and then they'd go sell off their exposure. And now private credit's just taking that market away because they don't. I mean, they care, but they don't really care what what the public market say to the public market is six six months from now because they're not marketing it anyway. Very interesting. And so finally, this last question is just my own pure personal curiosity. Do you see a big difference between distressed West Coast distressed and the East Coast distressed communities? I'm, I'm... What is this like, Biggie versus Dog? <laughs> <I mean. laughs> Yeah, we're we're much nicer on the West Coast. No, I, I, I don't really see. Um, obviously, some big players on the West Coast, but um, no, I don't perceive any real difference. Very good. No, I'll Just, let you uh, take I, over. I, I'm trying to remember the music awards where there was the big showdown on stage, and I'm trying to envision Cheney sort of. Anyway. <laughs> All right, so, That's a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe we kind of, you know, uh, change the gears a little bit here in terms of thinking more about uh, sort of the relative value and the broader investment approach. And I guess, you know, one of the first questions, and, and I think it comes up a little bit in terms of, you know, listen, cash is at 5%, right? I mean, which is someplace that we haven't had, and you made several allusions to where SOFR is and stuff like that. Does sort of the risk-free asset sort of being at a certain level like a 5%, does it really alter sort of how you evaluate the opportunity set that's in front of you? Does it change uh, uh, sort of the, the the returns that you need to command? Are you looking at it in a spread basis or a total return basis? Well, I, I hate to give you this generic answer, but we kind of look at it all. Um, you know, the, the, the most immediate impact, I would say, is with cash at 4 or 5%, you know, the cost of capital has just gone up so much that it's given us a lot, lot more to look at. And for the first time in a long time, credit is really attractive. And I would argue, you know, first time in a long time, it, the risk-reward dominates equities. Um, so... So does it change yeah, in terms I mean, of where yeah. you look in terms of the opportunity? Do you steer away from sort of the maybe the sketchier end of distress and you're able to find, I think we, you know, you talked a little bit about before in terms of basically finding good companies with bad balance sheets, which is maybe always the modus operandi here, but uh, does it make it, it sounds like maybe that makes it a little bit easier to do. Way easier, way easier. I mean, like bef- before, you know, I mean, the most extreme example, I think in 2021, what high yield touched 3.53%. And you're looking at like the hairiest deal of that you just almost guaranteed to lose all your money is coming at nine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, like, I, I remember those days very well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, that, that's brutal. Um, and so now, yeah, th- there's, you know, the, the companies that have, filed for bankruptcy in the last 18 months they're generally the weaker weaker companies that were really dependent on that lower cost of capital and i said you know half of u.s companies half of large u.s companies are now sponsor backed and that that's a lot of the best companies in the country 
you know, and you can be the best company country, yeah, best company in the country if you're six, seven times levered with floating rate debt. You probably still need some sort of solution like that. That company is probably just going to get more equity from their sponsor, but all the more reason then to like their debt. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is, you know, this environment's what we've trained for. You know, interest rates at zero forever. It's, it's not that fun to be um, a credit person trying to get you know teens' <laughs> <Yes>. returns. <laughs> so it was a very tedious time for sure. Uh, yeah. So, so I guess maybe uh, piggybacking on that a little bit, you know, I think it, a lot of the reference here sounds like we're really talking primarily about secondary markets. Uh, do you think about in terms of structuring? I, I know you guys get engaged in sort of bespoke solutions with certain companies at times. Is there, uh, I guess, maybe the current environment's more secondary friendly? Is there sort of a, a bias between the two or a difference between sort of the due diligence that, that you put into one situation or another? I wouldn't say there's a bias. We we want to provide solutions to companies' balance sheets, and a lot of times that will be a new money deal that is um, structured as a rescue financing. So I mean that's that's kind of our version of private credit. Um, we're we're not doing the regular way um, S four hundred or S five hundred deal very often. Um, we're targeting higher returns, and um, I said those situations you could be either restructuring it through an existing investment, but a lot of times these companies need money and you're underwriting and leading the, the rescue financing. So, I mean, it's, there are lots of holes in balance sheets across a bunch of sectors. I mean, we, we didn't even talk about how it also obviously applies to real estate and then, and structured credit. I mean, it's just higher rates have changed valuation. It's just, it's just simply the math. Of the cash flows. Yeah, no, it's been interesting to see, you know, certainly over the last year, because last year, I mean, there was a lot of talk, obviously, about the pullback on the CLO side and how that trickled through the loans and how that benefited private credit, et cetera, et cetera. So it will be interesting, I guess, to see as monetary policy plays out this year in terms of where all that goes. I guess, uh, you know, another sort of topic that sort of comes to mind and, and that you've made allusions to uh, throughout the conversation today is. You know, in terms of thinking about the market context in which you're allocating money, uh, are you looking for specific or are there specific macro or volatility climates where you where you just start licking your chops and you're like, yeah, we definitely need to be going out here because right now not only are we getting sort of regular risk spread, we're getting, you know, we're getting additional compensation for all these other market factors. Or again, do you sort of focus more on the opportunity versus the environment in which the opportunity surfaces? I mean, once again, it's both because we're staring at our individual credits, you know, as the preponderance of our uh, days for our analysts generating all the ideas. And at the portfolio level, we're obviously also trying to take in consideration the, the macro environment. I mean, I would say we, we have a we have like a. a a wish list, a, a pipeline of deals that we're looking at with target prices that goes out, you know, every day. And so as, as the market chops up, we are definitely much more active. We've been less active and in fact, probably lightening up in certain names over this last nine week rally. It was kind of similar last year. I mean, last year, the rally at the very beginning of the year, I found it somewhat perplexing, but we lightened exposures and then uh, we had SVB and Obviously, <laughs> I think I mean, I've never seen interest rate volatility like we saw last year. It was crazy. Yeah. So it's it 
it creates a, 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 a good hunting environment. The only thing that hasn't come, like you've referenced early, is the distress cycle. It hasn't really come because the economy has been very resilient. Yeah. Well, and, and as you sort of alluded to earlier, too, or spoke directly to, right, I mean, it's kind of a tale of almost two economies because you look at some spaces and you're like, wow, they're they're in trouble right now. And then you look at something like your your leisure sector or the gaming side and it's the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, it's it's it is a very interesting macro to try and allocate, I guess, maybe to the distress sector side, uh, you know. Uh, you know, part of the, the small distress cycle thing that I guess, you know, I think about sort of from the outside looking in is, uh, you know, given the amount of capital that's sort of in the space and sort of looking for opportunities, you know, we've certainly seen in the past where maybe you it feels like whether this is true or not, I don't know, but where it feels like maybe a cycle gets short circuited because there is so much capital that needs to get deployed. So people can't wait, quite wait to the finish line. So they end up sort of jumping out in front of it and allocating uh, do you worry about that in terms of how much, you know, I, I hate the term dry powder, but, you know, do you worry about sort of dry powder in terms of how you're timing opportunities and, and sort of versus waiting for that perfect price? Yeah, that's, I spend a lot of time <laughs> worrying about that. Um, you know, it's, it's always difficult because like I said, that even with the most recent rally, there are names that are trading at yields that I haven't seen in, since really the great financial crisis. And that's very tempting today, even though where did spreads worse right now? 350, 360, you know, it's not, yeah, broad high yields, not like flashing. The, yeah. Yeah. It's not, not flashing the like green light, just wave it in. Um, so we're always, we're always trying to calibrate, you know, balancing the opportunity to today versus, um, you know, could it get could it get worse? Of course. And then before, and I know Phil had a couple of questions in terms of trying to get into some of uh, maybe the lessons learned over time. But before we get there, I guess, uh, do you worry about uh, liquidity in terms of positioning? In terms of once you're in something, is it something where you also need to have that exit strategy, or are you sort of in it to win it? Uh, the liquidity is always a consideration. Um, but it's a consideration depending on the situation and how much, how convicted you are. And um, so I, I think there are times when we've taken positions we know it'll take a, a while to get out of because we're highly confident in it. And ones with less conviction, you got to be very mindful of the thin liquidity. Thanks. Uh, Cheney, uh I want to make sure you know you've you, you've done, seen a lot of deals. You've been through uh, you've been through the the trenches. Um, I'm hoping you can share with us some some of those lessons that you might have learned from some of these deals. And you know, specifically, uh, you know, I know for me, the the winners don't necessarily teach me is the lessons as well as the the losers do. And I'm just curious if, like, you have any stories that you'd like to share with us, uh, you know, along those lines that, you know, this deal just burned into me that this is something I'm not going to do again. Or, or maybe it was like this really worked or, you know, rules of thumb that you might have from uh, your decades of experience here investing in distressed. Yeah, I mean the the one that burned me the most um, was a an investment in an asset 
that was not generating EBITDA, but obviously had high hopes of getting to EBITDA. So I'm I'm very wary of asset-based lending um, because there there can come a time when that sponsor that was developing it or getting it over the goal line gives up and you watch an incredible uh, destruction in value uh, once you're the one funding <laughs> the ongoing maintenance costs. Um, so, and, and you know, and that, that, that also tends to be tied with the overall market. You, know, you see more and more asset-based loans when the markets are tight. Once the markets start showing those decent companies or good companies with, with good returns, nobody wants to touch those. And you just see these massive, um, massive drop downs in, in trading values. So that's, I'm always wary of something that I cannot see sustaining itself. Right. No, that that's, uh, it reminds me of, uh, your, your packaging guy. Uh, you know, I was involved in the restructuring of, uh, a pet resin. Uh, it's like one or two plant deal back in the aughts. It was a, it was called Wellman. And there was a time when <laughs> they're just one whole plank just closed. And it was, uh, you know, it, the asset may have a marker, but it, it really was never worth what, you know, it, uh, the secured lenders thought it might be, um, and then from the positive side, any uh, any 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 sort of things that make your eyes light up when you see it, uh, you know, great investment opportunities. You know, whenever you see it, you just have to dive in. You know, well, I've I've, I've covered some like gaming and packaging for twenty years, and. They're both similar in that they're super high cash flowing industries and they have moments when the markets really doubt the longevity and their multiple and fear of recession and they tend to be a little levered. So you get huge swings in valuation. So, you know, when they're very depressed, that usually lights you know, my eyes light up um, because, you know, when, when something's spewing off a bunch of cash, um, I'm highly confident that uh, those valuations come back. That's great. No, interesting. Thanks. So, so I guess maybe moving. Uh, I want to stay mindful of time here. I mean, maybe moving into one last question for you, Cheney. Uh, I guess, given the continued evolution that you see in the marketplace, how do you think about sort of how the market continues to evolve? Number one, and I guess since we're, you know, here in the new year of 2024. What do you think is something that uh, investors should stay mindful of uh, as they look out at the year ahead? Are there any sort of big themes that that sort of are on your radar? Well, I, you know, it's it's hard not to focus on um, the interest rate volatility and whether that's coming down or not. I, I, it does seem that the market may be on the cusp of going back to buy the dip from sell the rip. You know, I, we were definitely in 18 months of sell the rip because the, the Fed's tightening. Um, but, you know, it's just a different world with high rates. And I don't think there are that many of us who remember last time rates were here and that multiples were much lower. I mean, I, when I, my, my pre, pre-2008, a lot of things traded at six to eight times EBITDA, and that became eight to 10. 
or even higher for more than a decade. And if we go back to six to eight, you know, that then, then you, you have that massive distress cycle. And it does seem like there's so much in the markets, across markets and asset classes that are so wed to the eight to 10, that makes you think they do have to cut. <laughs> but if they don't. <laughs> and so we come full circle uh, <laughs> with the schizophrenia of the marketplace. So exactly. Cheney, on behalf of Phil and myself, I definitely, you know, we both really appreciate your time and, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, we will certainly wish you a great and profitable year ahead. And uh, thanks for joining us on State of Distrust Debt. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Welcome back, listeners. And so let's now turn to the part of the program where Nagisa and Phil dig into the particulars. Nagisa, let's start with you, Rite Aid. I'm not going to say anything else. Sure. So, okay. Thanks. No, um, I guess to start with a little bit of good news as far as December goes, Rite Aid managed to reach consensus on its $3.25 billion dip, which was initially uh, seemed to make have uh, been leading to a contested hearing. Um, the committees did secure some concessions, but um, most of the dip components like fees and rates remained uh, largely intact. Uh, concessions were mostly targeted to effect to targeted towards the effect that the dip could have had on the case's outcome. There were some new marshalling provisions, for example, that uh, now required that lenders first look to exhaust encumbered assets before turning to unencumbered value, which could potentially be used for unsecured creditors. Um, there's some sort of other uh, other changes to the dip, but like the securing a longer challenge period and increased investigation budget. But but the key terms remained in place on the sale front, which is remains one of the key aspects of Rite Aid's bankruptcy. Uh, there have been new developments there. Um, both Rite Aid and the bankruptcy court had uh, were adamant and sort of to combine the sale processes of the elixir and the retail operations, both signaling that Rite Aid was striving to potentially uh, sell the entire business as a whole, recognizing that there may be value combining those assets. This was in December, but that didn't end up happening. Um, Rite Aid actually uh, announced that it failed to get competing offers to the Elixir sale. So in December, it canceled that auction and ended up proceeding with this $575 million sale to Med Impact, uh, which had been the stocking horse bid. There were some objections to that sale by Walgreens, Walmart, CVS, and others, but there were cure objections, so not objections that really targeted the terms of the overall sale, and as expected, they were resolved uh, pretty promptly. Um, moving forward, sort of looking at some dates for January um, and February, uh, there's an auction for the retail operation scheduled for for potentially if necessary i guess scheduled for january 24th and then the sale hearing for that is going to be on on february 6th um i mean i guess where we stand today it's still kind of it still remains sort of a fragile reorganization effort there is an ongoing mediation that uh, we don't know a ton about but uh, most likely it started um in december 
it's uh, most likely ongoing. Uh, there's a hope that that may sort of aid the path forward, but not a lot of uh, public information has been made public for that. Uh, as far as where the court stands, I think it has been pretty firm on setting a March 1st confirmation hearing. Uh, there's been some pushback from the committees to kind of extend the process, but um I think the overall consensus is, and the court is in agreement, that a lot still depends on uh, the time that this company stays in bankruptcy. So there is very much an effort to uh, not be there for long. So we're sort of looking at March 1st date for confirmation. So sounds like maybe not fantastic, but certainly better than I think the last update that we got of the situation, which sounded uh, a little bit more dire. Uh, maybe staying with you for a moment in the turn uh, to the latest in Yellow Corp, uh, just by way of briefer, right? They filed back in August of last year, but things have moved pretty quickly there. So what's the latest? So yes, yeah, so we've talked here about the various successes of their auction process. Um, but what has always sort of was bound to have ha- to have a potentially much heavier impact on the path forward um, has been continues to be the treatment of the central state's nearly $6 billion bankruptcy claim. Um, Despite sort of the significance, obviously, of the claim on the unsecured creditors, pre-petition equity, there hasn't been a ton said about it until December when Yellow filed its objection to central state's claim suggesting that there may ultimately be significant value here for unsecured creditors and prepetition equity. And it all very clearly comes down to what it would take to reduce the withdrawal liability um, that uh, central claim, uh, central states alleges, and, and that's obviously not an easy path forward, most likely. To go over the basics here, the proof of claim, that's nearly $6 billion, as I mentioned. This is on account of withdrawal liability, participation guarantees, and some other matters, and much relies on the significance of this, of this uh, $35.8 billion that the government awarded central states. Um, clearly, unsecured creditors and equity holders would benefit only if the $6 billion claim is eliminated or overwhelmingly reduced. Um, in its objection, um, uh, Yellow argued that this uh, the five billion portion that's withdrawal liability claim should be subject to this twenty year cap, further reduced to net present value. It said that uh, that would amount to a claim that would be far below one billion. But those calculations, at least in December, uh, were f- pretty preliminary. Uh, there wasn't much backing provided, and they did look like they could, they would be subject most likely to sort of pretty complex litigation process moving forward. Um, in that December objection, there was a pretty tight timeline moving forward, but that appears that it will be stretched out quite a bit longer. Um, we know that simultaneously with that obje- objection, Yellow initiated what appears to be a pretty extensive discovery. Um, and recently, in January, just a few days ago, uh, Central State appears to be pushing to take this issue away from the bankruptcy court and place it in arbitration. The argument primarily being that this 
aren't bankruptcy questions, that arbitration is the most appropriate way to resolve this withdrawal liability, general ERISA questions uh, by an entity that's more, at least they argue, more knowledgeable than the bankruptcy court. Um, that always becomes tricky when you involve arbitration and bankruptcy proceeding. It becomes in many ways an efficiency question. Uh, bankruptcy courts pride themselves on efficiency, um, especially when it comes to claim resolutions, I assume. Um, that may be trickier to ensure in arbitration. But on the other hand, we do have a liquidating company here. So central state's argument is that time may not be as important here as it would be in a true reorganization. Um, so uh, we were expecting, at least in December, a merits uh, discussion in uh, in January here. That's turned into a question of whether the bankruptcy courts should even be addressing this issue now. Um, I think uh, that we may get at least the start of some resolution to that question in January and then sort of see how we proceed from there. Interesting. Well, certainly want to keep an eye on there. Phil, maybe let's bring you back into the discussion here. A couple of situations that continue to evolve and that you continue to follow. Maybe let's start with Diamond Sports, right? They're the regional sports network business. I think they filed in March of last year. You've talked on this podcast in the past about how things are maybe a little bit sloppy, but where are we now? How are things progressing? What are we looking for? So where we are right now is uh, the, the the company is was on a course to do a run out plan, which is basically uh, pay for contracts for the NBA, NHL, um, a large part of the Major League Baseball seasons, but then run them out for through the 2024 season. And at that point, uh, the company would basically liquidate. Uh, you know, it, it was a, a liquidating plan. Um, they always held out the hope that maybe someone would come in and they would keep that option al alive as long as possible, that someone might come in and actually look to invest in the company. And uh, they were always open to that because, you know, obviously that would be more, uh, that would maximize value. Um, Anyway, in December, we did hear that Amazon was uh, looking around, and that makes sense because Amazon is also a uh, substantial holder in the Yes Network, which is also owned and is being marketed to be sold right now by Diamond Sports. They're, they're trying to sell their 20% stake. Uh, so it's not surprising that they would be in there. Um, and there's been various news reports and uh, about you know potential 150 million dollar investment. Um, you know we've taken a look at that, and uh, I think it's it's interesting, but it the the the. The, the the difficulty comes with Amazon or any of these uh, you know tech companies is that are you are you interested in just bringing on the RSNs as uh, as a uh, as a channel on your uh, virtual MVPD, um, your program where, you know, like YouTube, live TV, Hulu Live, they, they have uh, RSNs on their, or they did have RSNs on their network. Um, they dropped them. Is this something that Amazon's thinking for Prime or FreeZ, their free version, uh, that they would have that on? It's unclear how Amazon contemplated any investment here or what it might do, but, um, 
that's still open. Um, as far as firm dates go, uh, the, 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 you know, the diamond has reached con- uh, agreements with the NBA and NHL on, um, in exchange for a discount and not having a unsecured claim on the estate, um, they will relinquish their rights after the 2024 season. And those leagues can, uh, remarket those. MLB, they don't have a deal with yet, and that. But I, I think one might be close. Um, MLB right now, the uh, the motion to compel a decision for all of those uh, telecast rights agreements was scheduled for January tenth. That got pushed back uh, till January nineteenth. So we will say um, it'll be next Friday, or I guess it'll be this Friday, maybe when this comes out. But. Uh, Anyway, that's that's kind of the lay of the land for Diamond Sports. Yeah, maybe Shohei Otani should buy them, I guess, uh, now that he's very enriched. I guess, though, he has to wait quite a few years for, for that money to come through. So, uh, it, you know, and it's interesting, too, right, because uh, it would be interesting to see if somebody like Amazon gets involved here just from the standpoint of, you know, you hear a lot about – you know, some of these uh, streaming networks cutting back a little bit in terms of the production side of the business uh, just because of the loss leading nature of some of it. But uh, let's shift gears a little bit, maybe staying within that sort of quasi-communication space and Odyssey, another name uh, that you're close to. What's what's the latest with them? So Odyssey filed for bankruptcy on January 7th. Recall they were putting off all of their interest payments and coupons. And, you know, that that whenever you see lenders or note holders put off their, you know, getting paid their cash coupons, that's usually means that they're, they're going along with something that they see something, a, a little patience is worth a lot more down the road. And sure enough, they filed with a prepack plan of reorganization that they hope to have confirmed by February 20th and out by early March, but that can get extended if they can't get FCC uh, approvals. Um, The deal basically is an 85-15 split between first lien lenders and second lien note holders. There is a a 10% wiggle there in the sense that 75% goes to the first lien and you have to put in your part for the $32 million dip financing if you want to get the additional 10%. Um, but it's it's pretty clear this is th- this is all teed up to get out. I think there's some interesting things around it. Um, you know, they didn't talk about how bad things are, but, you know, the, the EBITDA here has really fallen uh, pr- pretty low. It's, it's, I think right now it's got about $75 million of EBITDA in 2023. And so there wasn't much in terms of debt capacity. It's going to exit with about 350 million is what they're targeting. And so that's that's pretty high, um, you know, considering the company's also planning on making about 50 million dollars of capital expenditures. Uh, and 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 we've we've talked about it, uh, you know, in this high rate environment. You when you go into bankruptcy now, you better really call that debt because uh, there's there's not much room in the capital stack for it. Interesting. Well, uh, maybe, Nagisa, let's bring you back here, because one of the things I I think that's kind of interesting, as we just had, like, I guess, all these ETFs for Bitcoin and whatnot approved by the SEC, is that, you know, people seem to forget that we still have a number of these sort of bankruptcy cases tied around the crypto stuff ongoing. 
Uh, Grayscale Alameda is one of those. What's the latest there? Right. So obviously there was big news in the crypto world in the afternoon of January 10th with the approval of the Bitcoin ETFs uh, that included Grayscales, which is relevant for our purposes. the approval will likely soon moot at least part of Alameda's lawsuit, which uh, is seeking to unlock now about $4 billion in value for Grayscale shareholders. Um, the suit against Grayscale, it's also against DCG and the CEOs, uh, was initially filed back in March of last year. It was seeking both fee reductions and the implementation of the redemption program that amounted to about $9 billion. Uh, <clears throat> uh, that it would unlock for shareholders. Uh, we always thought that that was premature generally in many respects. Uh, after failing to get further support for it, Alameda actually dropped the fee reduction portion of the suit, filed a revised complaint in September, focusing solely on the redemption program. Uh, we had believed that the grayscale refusals to authorize share redemptions likely wouldn't be deemed a contract violation or bad faith conduct to begin with. Uh, but also in light of uh, it, Grayscale's uh, dispute with the SEC, the regulatory risk that Alameda was proposing seemed unjustifiable. Uh, it was basically seeking that Gray- Grayscale offers redemptions for its Bitcoin and Ethereum trusts before weaning SEC approval. Uh, that so that January tenth um, approval moves at least part of the suit that targets the Bitcoin trust, um, but sort of keeping in mind here, this is uh, moving in a standard litigation timeline in Delaware. Um, there's sort of briefing that's ongoing. There's potential oral argument that may be scheduled. So all of this will sort of proceed at least through th- through two Q. Um, so there's sort of quite a bit still that has to happen here uh, moving forward in the next few months. All right. So more to sort of keep in touch with on that one. And I guess maybe let's close out with you as well, Nagisa, here. I, I think one of the themes that we talked about uh, uh, regularly throughout the course of 2023 was the Texas two-step. Uh, you say there's a new decision out there that adds to the body of law. What is that? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, news on this has slowed down. Uh, but we did get a bankruptcy court decision from North Carolina, unsurprisingly, d- denying dismissal of the Chapter 11 plan of the, of the Chapter 11 uh, filing uh, by affiliates of train companies that were born out of a Texas two-step uh, of Texas divisional merger. Uh, this is the bankruptcy of Aldrich Pump and Murray Boiler. Uh, they hold the asbestos liabilities pursuant to a Texas two-step. And the decision demonstrated once again the key and major differences uh, among courts in the Fourth and Third Circuits when it comes to standard for dismissing a bankruptcy case. Justice in Bestwall, also in North Carolina, the bankruptcy court here, uh, held that the Fourth Circuit uses a more restrictive two-prong test that requires those seeking dismissal to demonstrate both the objective futility of the case, and that's a key term here, and the petitioner's subjective bad faith. The key word here being the subjective futility. The thinking in this North Carolina <laughs> case is... Has, I, I like anytime there's futility in anything. It's, it's it, a good it, term. It justifies my existence, but go ahead. <laughs> Uh, the thinking in, in this courts has been that though the debtors in these cases may be solvent, 
the tort claimants opposing these cases have failed to show, again, the objective futility of the case, and as a result, they cannot be dismissed as bad faith filing. Um, why does this matter? These are not unexpected decisions from the North Carolina Bankruptcy Court, but they, the more they come, they continue to bolster chances down the line, potentially, for U.S. Supreme Court review of Johnson & Johnson's similar strategy. Um, we know that Johnson Johnson now has a more immediate step, which is to reinstate the second bankruptcy of the Third Circuit. Uh, that remains very likely to be denied in the coming months. Um, so absent a Third Circuit bankruptcy attempt, which is sort of still, there's rumors out there, and following this likely uh, to be a Third Circuit loss, um, LTL, Johnson Johnson talc unit, is probably weighing U- U.S. Supreme Court review, and the circuit split certainly helps it. Um, I think you can also see it in the briefing of the Third Circuit, where LTL spends considerable time um, talking about this conflict between the Third and Fourth Circuits on this good faith standard. Um, and the circuit split is also obviously among the key factors that the Supreme Court considers when deciding whether or not to take a case. But also, I mean, again, this is the North Carolina Bankruptcy Court. This case is, will move to the Fourth Circuit. Uh, so there's quite a bit of uh, path ahead there as well. Well, we'll certainly continue to keep an eye on that one. Uh, interesting stuff as ever. Less futile. Your time spent with us here today, dear listeners. So with that, on behalf of uh, the team here, Nagisa, Phil, and myself, we'd like to once again thank Cheney Sheffield for joining us this month. And thank you for dialing in. And until next time, this has been State of Distressed Debt.